It is a treat to be among literal family and then spiritual kin as well. It's kind of a challenge when you have your brother in the church and you uh, also have a friend and fellow craftsman, John Randolph, both whom I hold in high esteem. So uh, it was charitable. Just give some advice to you. My my brother edited the story that he told. All right. So there's other bits of information to that story. Like, was that lawful? Um, whose property was that? Uh, there's a number of other questions that will not be answered. <laughs> so if you don't know how to tell stories in public, that's the way you do it, Hilt. All right, you got to give some edited stories. Um, the other, just caveat, and Hilt, I hope you had your anti-nauseous medicine this morning because I'm going to say some kind things about people, and I know that kind of turns your stomach, all right? <laughs> But uh, I do hold my brother in the highest esteem. He is the greatest man that I know. So if you don't believe that, you're wrong. And you just need to understand that he really is. Um, so Ben, I cherish you. Um, he, he, he was inflicted throughout his youth. And um, I was the thorn. So, But praise be to God, we're both like Jacob, loved by God and not hated by him. So that's our story. I'd like to also tell you, John is a craftsman. I have a high respect for John Randolph because of the way that he pastors you, the way that he gives his attention to God's word. For John as a theologian, uh, he's very diligent in his work. And so uh, I, it's always uh, an opportunity just to have a conversation with John where I can make him talk theology and I get to learn from him. But need to know something. Um, Evan, have you ever been hunting and somebody shoots ducks on the water? All right, that's called a poor sportsman. All right, but if you don't have talent, what do you do? You shoot ducks on the water, right? So if you're a good shot, you can shoot them in the air. For preachers, it works like this. Good preachers who can shoot the ducks in the air, they have short sermons. Bad preachers like me, we shoot ducks on the water. So I'm asking John, like, how long do you, do you speak for? And he said, 33 to 48 minutes. Like, what kind of answer is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't do that. I preach until I'm done, and then we go on. So uh, I shoot ducks on the water. And John is a very, very good shot. He aims small, miss small. No, not for me. So we're going to do the best we can, and there's the clock. All right, so I'm going to do the best we can. But Hilt, you can flag me down. You're in the back. Nobody's going to be distracted by you. And we'll see if we can land this plane. But in all seriousness, it is true. Better preachers can say what needs to be said in shorter periods of time. John's a better preacher. So may your value of him go up because at best 48 minutes, all right? But he said 38 30, I mean, 33 to 48 minutes. Um, you turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 6. So 1 Timothy, chapter 6. we got a lot to do, but we're going to try to make it through verses 11 through 16. So way I prefer to do it is we'll read the passage and then we'll, we'll dig in. First Timothy, the reason I'm choosing this is because I've been teaching through First and Second Timothy at Berean Community Church and uh, I think it's encouraging to uh, elders in churches as well as to churches is to see the the instruction and reminders that Paul gives to Timothy as well by way of Timothy to the church in Ephesus, which he is pastoring in this letter. So we're going to read verses 11 through 16. If you would read with me, or if you can just listen to me as I read, either way, let us hear the word of the Lord. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called 
and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, I think all of us would be able to agree that there's been some difficult times for our uh, country, difficult times for the Protestant Evangelical Church in our country. And in one sense, it is uh, it has definitely shaken many Christians. It's shaken many churches. Unfortunately, it has shaken many church leaders. But one of the opportunities that comes with difficult times is you're actually able to see things a little more clearer and one of the things that can happen from a clarity that comes through difficulty is that you actually learn that the Bible tells us this is normal. That these kinds of difficult times where there is opposition against God's people, against God's word, against therefore God himself, that this actually is standard. In the book of 1 Timothy, we find this, and we'll also see that Paul restates it again in 2 Timothy Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 1, Paul writes, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. I think, and I believe your pastor agrees with me, but you can consider the word of God for yourself, that in latter times it is referring to the time in which Timothy ministered in Ephesus. Paul actually ministered in this same time frame, if you will. Therefore, I think John Randolph and you, Crossway, you minister in this same age. You minister in the age that the Bible clearly teaches is that it's going to be difficult. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, I believe that is synonymous with latter times, in the last days, difficult times will come. One of the blessings that we get from difficult times is it sort of makes us rethink how we are looking at the world. If you are a Christian, how you're looking at the church. If you are a pastor, how you are looking at your ministry, at your office. And do you have the expectation that there's going to be difficulty? Not as unusual, but rather as normal. And when difficult times come, whether that's just because you're now a father and a mother and you're trying to navigate the new ideas that are almost being mandated upon you, that you need to agree with this. And if you do not agree, then there's going to be some kind of unfavorable circumstances going to push to you. Or if you're in a church and you're now having to be able to, in one sense, defend things that the church has believed for 2,000 years as if you're strange. In one sense, it is a blessing for us to be able to see that the Bible explains that this is actually normal. But the blessing comes that we're able to, in one sense, with this a bit of, of, of challenge to be able to return to, what then do I do? How am I to think? And Paul, in this letter, and we're looking just at a portion, but in one sense, it's like a kernel that's unfolded in all of 1 Timothy it comes to more accent in 2 Timothy. Paul here gives five obligations to Timothy, five obligations to Timothy for him to indeed have his faith rooted in God and to execute his duty as the man of God in the church. This is going to unfold for us that 
When you think about the man of God, and I know that's probably how you address John Randolph. I know he called Ben, Pastor Ben, to come up and pray, all right? But in one sense, what you're able to see in the New Testament with these phrases, the man of God, Paul isn't sort of cooking this up as a new way to refer to the leader in the church who is responsible for speaking God's word to God's people, leading God's people according to God's word. It is, goes back all the way to Moses, who was the man of God to Israel. It goes to Joshua, who was the man of God in Canaan. And that way, God has a pattern that is unbroken, that he places men in his people who will stand and speak his word, guiding his people for his purposes to his end. In your church, it is your elders. In every church, it should be their elders. And in every church that has elders, you will always find, you should find, if you do not find, you should be concerned, but you should find one or two or three, depending how many elders there are, but you should find at least one who has a little more experience and knowledge than the others. Because new elders are coming into the church's office and they're learning how to serve. And who would you want to learn from? Someone who is inexperienced and doesn't know what, what office they have and what they are to do? Obviously, you do not want to learn from that kind of man. There should be one or a few men who are serving in the church who will be instructing and examples to the other younger elders in the church. And that's what Timothy had. Timothy was the man of God that Paul had sent to Ephesus to continue some things that he had not finished. You want to know a little bit about what he had to do? You go to the beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Go to chapter 3, verse 15, and we find out, starting in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Timothy had certain objectives to his pastoral ministry at the church of Ephesus. One, he had to confront men to their face. Stop teaching that. And two... He had to teach the church how to behave as the church, how they are to act, how they are to worship, how they are to relate to one another, how they are to relate to, in one sense, the word of God through the ministry of Timothy. This letter is reminding Timothy of his duties. And in that sense, when we see him also in chapter 3, giving the qualifications to Timothy for those who would be able to fill the office of elder, we see that there is one man that has these other men around him by which he is teaching and providing an example, just as Paul was for Timothy. The man of God, whether that be Timothy in Ephesus, whether that be the elders of your church, the elders of my church, the man of God is known by what you can see in his character, and by what in that sense is manifest in his ministry. We as God's church benefit from this letter because we, we learn, not just the man of God learns, but we learn that the man of God needs to have the kind of character that enables him to do the difficult task of defending the truth and shepherding God's flock. Now, I'm looking out here, and it seems as if you are not unexperienced when it comes to the task of raising children. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, just I'm looking at mothers, all right? In some senses, I, I understand that the Bible teaches with incredible clarity that the father is the head of the household, the husband is the head of the wife. But we, we can't admit, can't we, that... Mothers, your hands are often most dirty with pastoral, in one sense, obligations to your children. You're correcting, you're instructing, you're having to figure out, okay, what's the positive direction that you need to learn to go? How do you need to sort of give an exposition of the negative aspects of the sin that you just chose? 
Mothers, you are involved in one sense in a lot of shepherding of children, and isn't it hard? And if you are in any way swayed by thinking your duty is not driven by the truth and what is actually going to glorify God and best benefit your children, I can tell you you're not that good of a mother. And fathers, though you are absent from the home far more hours than your mothers, you too know this to be the case. You're going to be able to lead and love your family. You're going to have to be devoted to the truth and then to teach them how it is that they are to live and respond. And if you're not devoted to that, then you can't do your job. You're able to see that this principle of your, of your character driving your ministry, that is the same for the man of God. It is in one sense, it is his character that indeed he possesses within that drives the ministry that is proven without, that he can defend the doctrine, he can be devoted to his duties, he can develop his character so that the church is going to benefit from him. But in that way, mothers and fathers, don't you need someone to remind you of your duty? Isn't there just a wonderful benefit of saying, that's right, that is what I need to do. Thank you for reminding me of my duty. Wives, I know that you rejoice when your husband comes and he says, let me just remind you of your duty. Or even worse, when wives and mothers, you go to your husband and the father of your children and say, hey, sweetheart, might I remind you of your duties? I'm sure he takes it, probably with a pen or pencil in hand, He's, could you repeat that again? I want to make sure I get that. I need to add that to the list of things that I'm seeking to do. I think we can, we can say as sinners, we desperately need reminders. We need clear instructions to tell us what it is that we are to do and how it is we are to do. So I'd like for you to make sure that as this is going to, in one sense, give us real clear directions for the man of God, the elders of your church, but the principles apply to all of us in spheres of ministry that God has given to us. But we do need to be able to say, I need, I need reminders. I need to be instructed in the things that I've already been taught, which requires that we have to be humble before God and receive his word. It means that we have to know that my standing with God is on the basis of his grace given to me in his son, not on the merits that I can maybe, by way of illusion, think that I have achieved, through my relative success, which is probably to say relative failure. So with that being said, the aim of this is going to, in one sense, instruct us about your elders, the five obligations that they have to be faithful to God and do their duty as the man of God in the church, but it has principles, I think, that apply to all of us. First, Verse 11, the man of God is commanded by the apostle to flee from that which ruins Christian faith. Look at verse 11. But, this is the New American Standard. Your translation may have a slightly different word. But flee from these things. Now, in one sense, there's a right attraction that we have to our leaders, whether that's in the family, the church, or the civil realm, for them in one sense to be bold like a lion. Don't we like our leaders to be bold like a lion? You like the idea that when the leader runs with his troops into the battle, he fights from the front and not from the back? But we also see here that the man of God as the leader in Christ's church, indeed he must, we're going to see, be bold like a lion, but he also has to learn how to run like a gazelle. That there is, in one sense, the right understanding, now is the time to run. Ben has alluded to our upbringing, and it was a blessed upbringing. The 80s were great. If you don't know about them, all right, in my opinion, you should not, don't imitate our music, don't imitate our clothes, but it was a wonderful wild west of a time compared to these days, um, my dad actually taught me to fight. I don't know, Ben, if he told you these things, and praise be to God, I never had to put these into practice too much. But uh, he said, Will, if you ever get in a fight, there's two things you need to know. Number one, if you, can ad if you can ever run, you run. You live, they live, 
Law's not involved. It's a, it's a win all the way around. I would extend that to you practically. Ask your daddy about that. But nonetheless, just as a suggestion, if you're ever in a situation where you have to fight but you can run, run, Cole. Run. But if you don't, my dad said you better win. Because that's the only way option. Well, here we're able to see that Paul tells Timothy that there is a time where the right response is to run. It is to flee. The man of God needs not only to know when to flee, he needs actually to flee. He needs to run away. He needs to act like a fugitive. In that sense, he needs to run like you stole it. He needs to understand that there is a wise response to temptation that the moral obligation that he has is to run away from sin. It might be that you see an example in your pastor when you just see the back of his head. That's a metaphor for saying he is running from the things that are actually known to ruin Christian faith. Now, we do not have time, but in the near context of this passage, verse 10, verse 9, verses 5 and 7 and 3, that is the these things that come before us, Paul has told Timothy what ruins faith. What are the things that you run from? I'm just going to list them quickly because I have 33 to 48 minutes to be able to preach this sermon. But in verse 10, one of the things that Timothy needs to run from is love of money. Love of money. Now it is true, you can be, in one sense, ruined in your Christian faith by loving money when you are poor. That normally manifests, because you're poor, in the sin of envy, right? Because you don't have money. But the fact that you love it is manifest in the transgression of envying, coveting money. But normally, it is manifest for those who have money. They are devoted to it. For Jesus says you can either serve God or mammon, but you can't serve both. Paul is instructed, reminded Timothy that he cannot love money. Paul instructs the church by way of Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds, sorts of evil. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, God created you know, each animal According to its kind, that's how sin is. Sin is, has kinds of transgressions. The root of all kinds of transgression, Paul says, is the love of money. Love of money, in one sense, breeds other evils in our hearts and in our lives. The presence of the love of money, in that sense, you should understand, it begets other sins. Love of money, in one sense, is a, a sin that is pregnant with more evils. Esau sold his birthright because he wanted material gain. Judas sold the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. The love of money ruins the soul. Pastors, the man of God, elders in the church, they have to run from the love of money. I'm told the deacons here are saying, don't worry, we are doing a good job of making John not love money. That's a joke that people say. You know, deacons pray, God, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. Number two, we need to understand that the man of God is instructed to run from, to flee from the desire to be rich. It's very similar but this temptation is also a trap to the saint. It is to the leader as well as to the Christian. And Satan has derailed many pilgrims with the scheme to try to make them desire to be rich. Pastors, like church members, can be deceived into thinking God needs you to have money. God wants you to be rich. You need to understand very, very clearly the Bible never, ever says anything like that. This is very helpful reminders because many pastors do not have spines. They're like many husbands who are afraid of their wives. 
And therefore, what they are afraid of is being poor. Now, you could at some level understand that, right? Because they have wives and children and bills and mortgages and they have material need. But in today's environment where it's both in the church, oh, it's not loving for you to say that, John. You can be called all kinds of, you know, you're a, you're a racist, you're a, some form of a, you know, your sin of, of preference or bias is being applied to me when, no, in fact, it's not. I'm just actually telling you the truth. When, in fact, church members are not going to like that. I don't like for you to tell me the truth, and now that means my life needs to conform to the truth, which means it needs to change, and I have to be responsible for my sin, owning up in relationships for my transgressions. That's not fun, is it? You can fire those kinds of preachers. And you can, or what you can do if they actually, if they desire to be rich, you can control them. You can threaten them. But not the man of God, because he cannot desire to be rich. I hope, Crossway, you're able to understand this. If it seems as if, church, you can control your elders from telling you the biblical truth, which you with your own eyes can read it in your copy of God's word, if it seems as if you can control your elders, apply some pressure, complain here, bicker there, and, and, they, and they bend and they budge on things that God's word is clear, you should be able to see the problem. Now, in that made-up situation, you're part of the problem. But men of God will, are not going to yield to that. One reason is that they have ran away from the desire to be rich. Verses 5 and 7 in chapter 6 also refer to discontentment. The man of God needs to flee from discontentment. Now, discontentment is, uh, in one sense, another sin that begets other sins. In Hebrews chapter 13, right as Paul, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but that's another time. But nonetheless, the author of Hebrews commands for the marriage bed to be be sanctified or, or kept holy. What comes right after that? A command to be content. One of the reasons that sexual immorality is something that we give ourselves to is because we are not content with God. We are not content with what God has given us. There are many sins that in one sense are born out of discontentment. The man of God is to run from discontentment. He is to flee from it. Therefore, to say it positively, the man of God is to learn how to be content with what God has given him. How to be, now, Timothy didn't have a wife. Timothy didn't have children. But if you are married and you are the man of God, which likewise, the same principle, as I've stated already from Hebrews 13, is all of us are to be content with what we have. You're to be content with your spouse. You're to be content with your children. You're to be content with your job, with your salary, with your house, with your health. Now, just, just quickly... Is anywhere in the world telling you that? And unfortunately, are there many pulpits that are, in one sense, placed in so-called Christian churches, and whatever is coming from that church, are they telling you to be content? When everything is driven by a market, especially even in churches, One of the things that you need to do is you need to sow seeds of discontentment so that people will want something else. You do not find Paul telling Timothy to do anything like that. He's telling him to do, would you you devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture? Like, what? Moses did that? Ezra did that? I mean, like, can't we, let's advance a little bit, Paul. No, public reading, public reading of Scripture to exhortation to the teaching. Discontentment, whether that's in pastors and in churches and in individual Christians, it begets a whole host of other sins. The man of God runs from discontentment. 
He also has said you need to run from different doctrines. Different doctrines. This in one sense was like mission number one at the church of Ephesus. We got people in the church at Ephesus, Timothy, they're teaching contrary doctrines to the gospel of Christ. They're teaching things that I taught them. You, that does not cohere with the truth. You need to go to those men and you need to teach those men not to teach those things. But where in the world would different doctrines ever gain traction from in the church of the living God? In the ears of people who want different doctrines. False teaching only survives because Christians have itching ears who want different doctrines. If this, in one sense, if the demand for contrary doctrines didn't exist among those who were in the church of Christ, then there would be, in one sense, no market for different doctrines. And one place that we need to make sure that you cut off, cut off the demand for different doctrines in the man of God. He cannot have an interest in strange doctrines. He needs to be content with the doctrine of the word of God. You need to be content with the man of God knowing what has been received from Christ and the apostles and given to the church as the faith once for all delivered to the saints and then he then gives it to the next generation. He lives his life in one sense as a just a waiter passing the food to the next generation and he dies. And the real test of his life is, did you spit in the food? Did you put your finger in there? Did you change out some ingredients because they need a new flavor? Is it a little too spicy for them? You dumbed it down and made it plain? The man of God cannot have in his heart, he cannot have a desire for different doctrines. These are things that you run from. You, you run from. You flee. So the back of John's head, in its full glory, you should see he runs from these things. That's the example that you want to see. Now, number two, this also comes from verse 11. Not only is he commanded to flee from these things, you man of God, but then he is told to go after certain things. Pursue, do you see that? Pursue. I think you can say this. Praise God, football season is here. I know football season has been tough for us the last few years because it's been uh, hijacked with other people's causes, but what a wonderful sport. Because you see, you know, these full-grown, like, you know, Greek god-like men running after one another, like, you know, and then they hit one another like a car crash. It's the best sport. When you think about this word pursue, we could go into other, you know, English translations of the Greek word, but in one sense, it, you should imagine when when that tailback is coming around and you see that linebacker going after him, that's what the word pursue means. If you don't, if you watch soccer, I don't help. I don't have any way to help you. Watch football, and that'll at least give you a metaphor. Like you are going after this with all you have. No offense to soccer players; it's a great sport, right? Pursue is something that you. It is in the inner man, in one sense. It is in the heart that says, "I, I want these things." And thus, with all of your faculties, you are seeking to obtain these things. It is not wishful thinking. Like, what are you going to be? I'd like to be a basketball player. How are you, what are you doing to accomplish that goal? I'm just, you know, watching basketball on TV. You're not pursuing anything. This, that's not what pursue it. It's the inner life of the man of God that wants these things, and then he runs after them in order to make them his own. Let's look at what Paul commands here, the man of God to pursue. Again, notice all of these are not unique to the man of God that is the pastor of the church, the pastors of the church. They, All of us are to pursue these things. So we can't say like, ha, guess what? I don't have to pursue righteousness because I'm not a pastor in the church. Uh, pardon? 
Without holiness, the author of Hebrews also says in chapter 13, you will not see the Lord. So all of us have this obligation, but it makes sense that the same standard that God applies to all of his children, that it is exemplified in the man of God, and first is righteousness. Righteousness. Now, in first, the same book, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says that righteousness results from sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, in one sense, begets in our life righteousness. If you are an ignorant Christian when it comes to sound doctrine, then there is at some level like a a governor on the engine of your spiritual life. You can only go but so fast. And that governor that keeps you from going so fast is your ignorance. You do not know sound doctrine. Some of us are just ignorant, and for that reason, we do not know sound doctrine. If you want to be able to go further in righteousness, you need to be able to learn sound doctrine. I think there's a class on Wednesday that's going through doctrine. Put it on your schedule. We do a lot of things, don't we? You're playing sports. How many hours a week do you give to playing sports? I bet you a lot, because that's what it takes. Just ask yourself, what kind of correlation is there in your life to actually knowing sound doctrine? 33 to 48 minutes on a Sunday morning? You might have a pretty significant governor on your life if that is the main contribution to your ability to know sound doctrine. Righteousness comes from sound doctrine. Some of us are, in one sense, handicapped for righteousness because we actually have not just ignorant of sound doctrine, we actually have bad doctrine, unhealthy doctrine. Whatever that may be, we need to be able to figure out, like, I got to get rid of this decayed stuff in my house of doctrine and put it back with what's sound, what is strong, what upholds. We are able to see that because of righteousness being built on the sound doctrine of Christ as it was taught to the churches through the apostles, that this is what the man of God pursues. He pursues pursuing the practice that corresponds with his doctrine. You probably know that one of the commands in the same book, in chapter 16 of chapter 4, verse 16, is pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Life and doctrine are, in one sense, Timothy's main concerns. Life and doctrine, because they're not divided, they are combined. That is where he is to give attention. And and Paul says, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The most important thing you need your elders to be able to do, you need them to do two main things. They are to be devoted to sound doctrine and to present you a faithful life that corresponds to the sound doctrine that they hold to. You should be asking them questions like this. John, tell me what books you've you've recently read. What have you learned in those books? Tell me, what are you learning in your study of God's Word? You You can ask John that question. Ask Ben that question. Granted, Ben doesn't have the same amount of time as John. I understand that. Right? You ask James, ask Ray. John should be able to give you more answers, all right? So don't hold James and Ray to the same standard as John. But they should give you something, and you should want them. And if they say, I haven't been able to do that and give some example, like, okay, sickness, we're all right. But if they're like, I mean, have you looked at the weather? It's been great for golf. Fish have been incredibly hot. Like that'd be a problem, right? You're not pursuing righteousness if you're not pursuing understanding sound doctrine and living in light of it. Let's go to the next one, back to chapter 6, verse 11, godliness. I think we've blown 33 minutes out of the water yet. All right, godliness. What is, what is a godly life? Godly life, according to chapter 2, verse 2 in 1 Timothy, is a life that pleases God. Kids, that's, this is, just learn some definitions. A lot of words, kids, look at me. 
All right. If you don't if you don't pay for your own rent, you are a child in my category of thinking. All right. So if you're living under your daddy's roof or your mama's roof, you're a kid. You're a child. All right. You're a boy. You're a girl. All right. Look at me. If that's you, if you go to their table and they're feeding you. Look at me. There are a lot of words that the church uses that you don't know the definitions to. Don't feel bad about that because we just assume you'll learn those definitions. And that's our fault. One of those words is godly. He's a godly man. She's a godly woman. What does godly mean? Godly means living a life that pleases God. That's what godly means. Living a life that pleases God. The man of God is commanded to pursue a life that pleases God. A life that pleases God. Like money, you can't serve God and money. The same is true with a life. You can't live a life that pleases God and think you're going to please everyone else. The man of God has to, in this way, devote himself. He has to pursue. He has to run like a linebacker after the tailback. He has to pursue godliness. Living in a way that God is pleased. Now, this does mean that it is, indeed, it is an issue of the heart, but it manifests practically in his life. Paul is able to give illustrations for the whole church about godliness. Right? Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, that practical godliness is the result of training. It's actually, again, he says, pursue godliness. And he contrasts that with exercise. Exercise only has a temporary benefit. Make sure you heard that. Temporary benefit. It, I can be as fat and sloppy right now, and in heaven, you're going to be like, whoa, what happened to you? And it's called glorified body. Godliness, however, also obtained through training, through discipline, through pursuit. Benefits now and forever. It might be, I'll let John chase this rabbit, all right? It might be that there is a relationship right now to our pursuit and development of practical godliness that will have an eschatological corresponding limit for us. So that if you can think that you can coast through life not pursuing godliness, there's going to be some kind of, and once it's possible, capacity that you will eke out in heaven. That would be a shame, wouldn't it? To go to heaven and to be able to see the glory of God and to have all of your sins removed, but because we are able to see, indeed, there is a benefit to godliness now and in the life hereafter, maybe I should be giving more attention to godliness than to exercise. I'm in no way saying that it's okay for us to neglect our physical tent. All right, The tent needs some care. Paint the barn from time to time. I get it. But here, the pursuit is of godliness. Positional righteousness is found only through faith in Christ. But the practical righteousness that comes through the progressive progress that we call sanctification comes by our repeated trust and obedience to Jesus and what He commands us to do. In that sense, it's, it's, there is a bit of sweat, it's holy sweat, but it's not glorious, is it? There is some reasons that we are given analogies that are re related to exercise. Exercise stinks, doesn't it? I hate it. It's not fun. I mean, who wants to just run around and sweat and do push-ups and sit-ups? I mean, you could like eat instead. I would much prefer eating. There is a sense in which we need to understand godliness is far more, far more like exercise. It requires discipline, pursuit, sacrifice. Let's go to the next. We're also commanded, the man of God and all of us, by principle, are also commanded to pursue faith. Faith. Now, isn't this interesting? We're kind of like, hey, wait a second. What? If I am justified by faith, how am I pursuing faith? Well, there's two ways that we need to understand that the Bible speaks of faith. One is in that, that faith that we do possess by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which does happen at the moment of regeneration. Some of us had very clear moments where that reality became known to us. 
Others of us, it was more like Spurgeon says, that it's like the sun rising. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but I'm sure that it has happened. All right, that kind of saving faith is possessed by every Christian. But there's another way in which faith is taught in Scripture, and that is the aspect of it is something that we have that we use, that we exercise. Timothy is commanded here to pursue faith. That is, is it's that kind of ministry that is going to take God at his word. We might be able to do better with this to say trust. Timothy is commanded to trust God. How can you trust God? You take him at his word. He's going to do what he says. I trust him. What happens if you don't see it? That doesn't matter. He has made the promise. He keeps his promises. I will trust him. I will live my life based upon this trust. This is a key when it comes to ministry. When Christ brings grace into our life, we now fight a new fight that is waged by actually trusting God. That's strange, isn't it? We have a sword in one sense that it is the spirit. How do you swing it? By trusting him. By simply believing God's word to be true and putting your life, in one sense, in a corresponding order around God's word. Just just to illustrate this, I imagine you, like me, are a great sinner. But some of us may have done some sins, like Ben left out the fact that we were trespassing when we jumped off of that cliff. All right, but we have done some sins that in one sense we're like, I'm sure glad that that's not a part of my testimony this morning. But it's not just that we might have difficulties with thinking like, what would John think of me if he's known everything that I've done? But we think, what does God think of me because of what I have done? You know where the problem is with that way of thinking? The problem is, do you trust the gospel? Do you trust that Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins, including those sins that you in your moment of distrust think that he does not forgive you of? Now, we could illustrate this kind of trust in multiple ways, but in one sense, the gospel itself is telling us something that is absolutely crazy. You mean I, a sinner, am actually standing in my position in Christ as righteous? Yes, that is the gospel message. Can you please, like, that's true of your spouse. If she is a Christian, if he is a Christian, if they stand in Christ before the Father, then what trust in the gospel means is their standing is righteous. How how would we know that? Because that's the promise of the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't have time, but chase down Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, we could apply the same exercise of trust to all that God says, and therefore we're simply going to pursue faith. Again, illustration has, we could be here forever, and I have 38 to 33 to 48 Next is love. The goal or end of our of a ministry is love. That's what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 5. Christ's grace also in chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, gives to us love. Continued obedience to Christ is evidence of our love for him. Chapter 2, verse 15. Timothy is commanded in chapter 4, verse 12 to be an example to the church of love who then do we find God commanding us to love never ourselves just make sure you know that only two people God and others Timothy is commanded here to pursue like that linebacker to pursue love to pursue loving God and others one another Now again, just imagine, Timothy isn't walking into some great church. Also helpful, this is a small church. I I mean, maybe we don't realize, like, do you know how small the churches are in these letters? They met in houses. Like if Crossway was a church in the, maybe we'll take out Jerusalem. 
All right, but if you take out Jerusalem, we're, you'd, you'd be, you know, a megachurch. You'd call John Bishop. You'd be like, hey, John, go to Rome. I think we need you to give a dispute. These are small churches. So what is it like when Timothy has the job that he's got to confront people to their face, stop teaching that doctrine? You know what that's like because you're a small church. Like, you know, the word gets around. And yet Timothy is being commanded here to love. That means he's being commanded to love the very people in this church that he might have like, you know what, it's not really easy for me to love them, Paul. We have personality differences. I'm an introvert. He's an extrovert, Paul. Come on. Then Silas. That's not the way it works. The pursuit is love, and the objects of love are God and neighbor. And when you're in the local church and you are the man of God, that means you're going to love, you're going to love every church member. Pursuit of love necessitates that. Next is perseverance. All these are coming if you, if you have lost your place, as I have in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Perseverance. Perseverance. This is that, in one sense, like faith, you are continuing. You are continuing to trust God. Right? One of the reasons that this has to be what is pursued is because false teachers never persevere. This has been the problem. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 4, we're able to see that this is commanded positively but negatively we're able to see chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, and I want you to see this because the Bible teaches us very clearly how to understand, like, how did that guy go AWOL? How did he come off the tracks? Well, this is how he came off the tracks. Verse 4, that he would pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. That's another way to say they did not persevere. They did not persevere in sound doctrine. They did not persevere being content with God had given to them. They wanted something else, and so they stopped being faithful. One of the key pursuits of the man of God to, to be able to be faithful in his duties is you just have to keep going. I've been at Berean Community Church for 17, so I think, John, you've been here 15 years, 13 years. The wonderful thing about seeing a man make it to 13 years, James, you can speak for this. I hate to say it, but, you know, if you've done something for 10 years, it's like, ah, that don't really mean anything. For some of you younger folks who you, you, you haven't done much for too long, you need to realize until you can do the same thing over and over past a decade, and getting content with that and devoting to that and continuing to do that, you haven't had to slog it out yet. Minister in the same church for 13 years, John, I bet you you've learned something. you just got to keep going. You have to keep going. Perseverance is continuing to do what God calls you to, continuing to trust in what God tells you, and you, you, you just don't quit. Persevere. Pursue perseverance. I understand. I have a firm grasp of the obvious, but guess what? No one else has a firm grasp of the obvious in the church today. Half of the problems have a simple answer of like, where in the world do you get the idea that you just get to quit? Because you don't like it? Persevere. Trust him and take the next step. Pastors need this reminder too. The man of God needs this reminder. And now lastly, he's commanded to pursue gentleness. Gentleness. Indeed, this is a fruit of the Spirit. I'm sure you are aware in Galatians 5, verse 21. Care of God's family requires gentleness. Indeed, the sheep that you shepherd, they are precious to God. You're going to have to be gentle with them. You therefore need to pursue gentleness. Now there's more of these, but this is what Paul sets forth here. And now let's turn to the third. 
The man of God also has to fight. So just notice in the Bible, you can be gentle and a fighter. You can be a fighter and be gentle. In fact, you have to be both. The shepherd is the metaphor that controls at least how we should think of the men of God in the church. That is, yes, they fight to protect the truth and the sheep, but they care with great gentleness and love for the sheep that they protect. But verse 12 commands Timothy, and therefore all who find themselves in the same role in the church fight the good fight of the faith. This is the second time Paul has commanded Timothy to fight this fight. Now, often, fighting is wrong, right? Probably, if you're in a fight, you might ask yourself, should I be in this fight? Is it pleasing to God for me to be fighting? Probably in our marriages, the answer is no. Children, probably with your parents and your siblings, the answer is no. But that doesn't mean that all fights are not good. There is a good fight. And here, Paul is commanding Timothy to fight what is called a good fight of faith. When God calls for us to use the weapons that he has given us for the warfare for his truth and against falsehood, it's a good fight. And that is what is being called here. Timothy has to fight for the truth, and that requires having conflict with those who teach differently. Now, I understand in the age of the Internet, we can imagine false doctrine sort of falls out of the Internet somehow into our ears. That's not the way it works. At least I don't think, but I don't understand the Internet too well anyway. But nonetheless, there's individuals who are promoting false doctrine. And therefore, to fight the good fight of faith means not only that in your own heart and mind you are devoted to the truth, but it also means you actually have to do warfare. You have to have conflict with those who are teaching strange doctrine. Why would you do that? Are you pugnacious? Do you just get your kicks because high school sports was the end for you? No. It's because it's a part of the good fight. That when there are contrary doctrines to the truth for the sake of the glory of God, the preservation of the gospel, and the salvation of the saints, you, you have to now fight. It requires Timothy to go after these false teachers to confront them, and if necessary, they need to be able to be excommunicated out of the church. Does that sound like a pleasant job description? It's not. It's not fun. Imagine what it might cost Timothy. Imagine what it did cost Jesus. Imagine the kind of enemies, both within for us as sinners and without when it comes from the pressure. Because you know what false teachers have? They've got family. And you deal with one false teacher in the church and you have to do the hard job of fighting for the faith by saying, you can't, you can't teach that. If you're going to teach that, whether it's at supper over at your house with people in the church or whether you're going to try to do it in a Sunday school class, you're going to have to go. And I'm only going to warn you one more time. They have relatives in the church. And they have children that the church loves. Does that sound fun? Do you want that job? You've got four men in this church who have that job. And that's the job of fighting the good fight. Number four, take hold or grasp the eternal life that is promised in Christ. Also in verse 12, we're surely at the 48-minute part of the spectrum here, John. Timothy was promised eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. You commit sin, you need to know. The Bible tells you, what are you earning right now? Death. But the gift of God in Christ Jesus is what? Eternal life. T Timothy was promised eternal life in Christ, just as we have been. Believers obtain eternal life by believing on Christ. Verse 16, chapter 1 in the same book. Where did Timothy learn this? His mother and his grandmother. 
using the Old Testament Testament to make him wise unto salvation. But now it is a time for Timothy to hold fast to the eternal life which is his in Christ Jesus. Paul has noted how a mother will persevere. Already in this letter, Paul has noted how does a mother persevere in her faith in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 15, and raising up her children. I don't know if that's how John understands it, but that's how I do. Perseverance of the faith, grabbing hold of eternal life, has expressions, if you will, in our relative vocations in God's ordering of society in the church and the family. And when it comes to the men of God in the church, the way in which they are going to grab hold of eternal life, which is promised them in Christ Jesus, it comes by being faithful in their station in the church. Now, he refers here to the good confession, and this can be a little challenging because maybe it's his confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. That's possible. I don't think that's what it is. I think this is rather when he came into ministry, it was formal. There was a ceremony. The church approved of Timothy's ministry. Timothy also knew what he was getting involved with. And so when they laid their hands on him for his ordination, so to speak, he made a confession right there before the church. And in that sense, it's not like the way the church does it today. That you can kind of like go in and out of ministry as if there's an option for you to do something else. Now it is true, some men need to step down from ministry. But the problem is getting into it. There should be, like there was for Timothy, you need to understand that you are pursuing something here that you are going to, in one sense, connect, rivet to your faith in the Lord Jesus such that perseverance of faith, grabbing hold of eternal life in Christ Jesus for you means being faithful in the church that God gives you to pastor. Do you want that? If you don't want that, you don't need to move forward in this office. I think that's what is going on here with this good confession. I could be wrong. John will straighten you all out. But nonetheless, this is what I think at least in principle is involved with this this command that he is to grab hold of eternal life. In the same way that you as a husband, you have an obligation to love your wife. How am I going to be able to see your faith in Christ at work? By the way, you love your wife. Likewise, wives, how am I going to see that you actually give to God what he demands of you? Well, one, you're married, so I'll be able to see by how you relate to your husband. Right? Like, this is not strange, is it? This is normative for us. So too for the man of God. The man of God will in one sense grab hold of eternal life by the way in which he is devoted to his duties as pastor of the church. Now we'll go faster. Verses 13 through 16 deal with this keeping the commandment pure until Christ returns. I think the commandment is in one sense summarize the truth of the gospel. There should be in one sense no changes, no changes in what John preached when he first got here and what he preaches before God takes him home. It should be undefiled. Because his job is to keep it pure. Don't mess with it. This is why you you mainly need faithful men. Now I know some of you in the Air Force, you took a vow. I get the privilege of being in a church with Marines. And they are actually, they say this. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the office appointed over me according to the regulations of the uniform of the Code of Military Justice. So help me God. Now in this, what is distinct is that you actually are choosing... To do this. You you are not forced into doing this. You are choosing to do this. So this is now a responsibility that you have. But notice that you will either keep this stained or unstained in how you carry out your duty. John and the pastors of your church have the same obligation. And who will judge them? Paul makes it very clear. 
that it is, it is at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God. Jesus himself gave the good confession before Pontius Pilate in obedience to the Father's will. He will judge John. Did he keep it pure? So if you ever think, in one sense, that the pastors of your, your church, I don't know what they're like, to be honest. But you're like, they're kind of stiff. Like, let up, man. Just relax, okay? so feisty over the truth all the time. What if you stood before the Lord Jesus and you had to give an account for keeping this pure? How would you do that? How do you want them to do this? Knowing that God's word commands them that they will be judged before God and Christ for keeping this unstained. Keep the commandment pure. They have to do this until the man comes around. Hilt, that is an illusion to Johnny Cash. He tells Timothy that you're going to be doing this until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you give John and your, your elders some rest. But I hope they understand also, you'll get to rest when Jesus returns. And until then, you can't do anything other than what you've been called to do. And if you cook up some kind of other scheme for why you need to go do something else and call it ministry, I just want you to know Jesus will appear and you will be accountable. And until he comes around, you can't stop. Your shift at that point will be over. Now, if you are in any kind of difficult role and responsibility and you have an office that you are accountable for protecting something or someone and at the same time caring for people, what's one thing that you want? Mamas, I'm thinking of you. You do that every day. Your husband comes home and what do you do? <sighs> I'm glad to have some reinforcements. Good thing you're back. Like, we understand that, don't we? We understand, like, this is hard and when things are hard, we have this propensity and we are fueled by our society to think, when is this over? Good news. Good news. It's going to be over when Jesus returns. We'll rest. Until then, we're going to carry on. So here. The man of God labors until the man comes around and so we're able to see that there were these exhortations. you got to keep the commandment pure until Christ returns. There is to grasp the eternal life, to fight the good fight, to pursue the marks of the Christian faith, and to run from that which ruins Christian faith. Now, there's more encouragements there, but I've even gone over 48 minutes. If you have questions about what I said, come and talk to me. Don't crucify John or Ben or uh, Ray or James. I would love to, I'd love to answer any questions. But if you have questions about Christ and knowing God through him and your life being conformed to what pleases him, go to John, go to your elders, talk to them about it. But I think y'all sing next. Is that what happens, John? Thanks for letting me be here. You can see I shoot ducks on the water. John shoots them.